Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. In this episode, Jerry Weirwill and I systematically refute Michael Brown's problematic case for the deity of Christ in his recent debate with Dale Tuggy. Due to the number of texts Brown crammed into his opening statement, this will have to be a multi-part series. In this episode, we begin by covering Brown's assertion that believing that Jesus is a glorified man, quote, neuters the gospel, end quote, since a man's death for our sins is, according to him, hardly a demonstration of the immeasurable love of God. Then we discuss his contention that Isaiah 42.8 means that God does not share his glory with anyone else in light of the worship scene in Revelation 5. Finally, we explain the absurd claim that Jesus claimed to be the I Am of the burning bush in John 8.58, as well as the Alpha and Omega text in Revelation. Now, to help you follow along, I do have the relevant portion of the manuscript Brown used for his opening statement on restitutio.org or in the show notes for this episode so you can follow along there. I just want to offer a little disclaimer before we get into the episode here. I want to make a clear distinction here between respecting a person and respecting a person's arguments. I believe that as Christians we are called to show respect, especially to each other and to others as well, obviously, but that doesn't mean that we can't strongly refute someone's arguments. And so I hope that comes through in this because I do offer, along with Dr. Jerry Weirwell, a strong critique of Brown's case here. But I hope everyone realizes that this is not a critique of Brown as a person or as a Christian, but of what he says here in this debate. So I hope you understand my distinction there. Here now is episode 159, Refutation of Michael Brown's Case for the Trinity, Part 1. Well, let's begin by playing Dr. Michael Brown's opening statement. All right. Thanks so much, everyone, for coming out tonight. Thanks for tuning in to the live stream. And thanks, Dr. Tuggy, for your comments, which I am super eager to rebut. Just for the moment, let me point out there's not a Catholic bone in my body. Everything to me is what Scripture says. Uh, The fact is, Dr. Tuggy claims that Jesus is simply a glorified man. And I want to declare in the clearest possible terms that the Son of God of the Bible the one we rightly worship as God, is infinitely more than a glorified man. To make him into a glorified man is to deny the clear and consistent witness of Scripture. To make him into a glorified man is to neuter the gospel, since the idea that a glorified man died for our sins is hardly a demonstration of the immeasurable love of God. To the contrary, when God sent his son to pay for our crimes, he was giving of his very self. All right, I want to pause it there. I've got a good 20, 30 minutes worth of material on just that opening paragraph. (laughs) So uh, I'll try to restrain myself. It's interesting that Brown begins by saying he does not have a Catholic bone in his body. And this is something that seemed to be somewhat of a sensitive spot for him. And that is because Tuggy rightly specifies the Trinity as a Catholic doctrine that Protestantism just wholly took on without any any critical reflection whatsoever. 
back to this statement, this is a Catholic dogma, period. These were Catholics, or at least proto-Catholics, who developed it. This was the state church. I mean, this is the moment the church becomes a state church is when the Trinity comes into the picture. In 325, when the emperor, who is not a baptized Christian, suggests the, the, the term homoousios as the defining theological category for the church. So whether or not, you know, Brown thinks he's a Catholic, he's affirming Catholic doctrine here. And there's just no way around that. I mean, that doesn't mean it's wrong. Catholics believe a lot of things that are right. Uh, I think that everyone would agree. Catholics believe in Jesus. Catholics believe in the resurrection and in many different things in Scripture that we could uh, we could all agree on. So, I mean, I don't think the fact that this is a Catholic doctrine makes it automatically evil or wrong, but I think denying its source is really being dishonest with the historical record. But we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that later. Brown says that he thinks that Tuggy believes that Jesus is simply a glorified man and that affirming that Jesus is a glorified man denies the clear and consistent witness of Scripture. Well, here again, this is, this is very problematic with the classic doctrine of the Trinity where people affirm, Trinitarians affirm, that Jesus is fully human. It seems like Brown doesn't believe Jesus is fully human here um, since he's denying that Jesus is a glorified man. Um, and then he goes on to say that this neuters the gospel, since the idea that a glorified man died for our sins is hardly a demonstration of the immeasurable love of God. I, I just strongly disagree with that. I don't know what you think about this, Jerry, but I mean, saying that it neuters the gospel is excessively crass. I mean, it's it implies that believing in the humanity of Jesus undercuts the atonement, which is the exact opposite point. As we'll see, I don't, I don't want to go too into detail here, but I strongly deny that believing that Jesus is a human being in any way diminishes the gospel message or that it makes it hard for God to demonstrate his immeasurable love through a human being. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. It's the doctrine of the deity of Christ that neuters the gospel as came out in this debate where Dr. Brown was questioned, do you believe the Son of God died? And he said unequivocally, no, I don't believe the Son of God died. At which point you could hear a pin drop in the auditorium because we were all in shock that he just denied the atonement. Now, if that doesn't neuter the gospel, what does? You know, shucking off impersonal humanity from your, your true self is much less valuable than the true death of a full human person. And that's what the Bible teaches, and that's what we affirm. And that's not neutering the gospel. That is affirming the gospel. The gospel is that the man, Jesus, died for our sins. It's right there in 1 Timothy 2.5. There's one God, one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom at the proper time. So, look, it's his humanity that makes it possible for atonement. And this is not a diminishment of God's love because God didn't himself come and die for us. This is an affirmation of it. Any parent knows that watching a child suffer, their own child suffer, and die voluntarily for others is much more painful than going through it yourself. And so, once again, this statement is just completely fallacious. And then he concludes with the line, 
To the contrary, when God sent his son to pay for our crimes, he was giving of his very self. Look, that's not, that's not the Trinity, <laughs> right? I mean, the Trinity is the idea that the son is not the very same self as the father. And so right from really the opening statement here, we, we get this one self Trinity idea, which really smacks of modalism, the idea that God himself is the one who suffered on the cross, that the Father is the one who suffered on the cross, is an ancient heresy. And and look, this is just a, a portent of what is to come, where we get these categories all confused and mucked up because Brown just simply refuses to delineate carefully between these different categories and to explain what it is he uh, he's putting forward here. Yeah, I think you're right, Sean. Uh, the opening statement here kind of actually gives a little bit of a color of the way that Brown is going to be proceeding. And his lack of specificity with these with this terminology of of who Jesus is and who the Father is by not using uh, careful terms such as substance or person, which were developed for the sake of trying to defend the idea of the Trinity, he's going to end up falling into a, a lot of conundrums and, and self-contradictions, as we'll, we'll find out later. But I think you're absolutely right that uh, the idea of that the immeasurable love of God is not demonstrated through the human Messiah Jesus, that's exactly Paul's point in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5. God proves his love in that he sent Christ to die for us. And it says that one man, through his disobedience, we all became sinners and deserve death. And it says by one man, through his righteousness, we all then receive the gift of eternal life. I mean, it is, it is the humanity aspect of the disobedience and the obedience that Paul parallels, not the, not the humanity and deity, you know, not that God himself came and corrected everything. It was that God's agent, the human Messiah, Jesus, is the one who has recovered what was lost in Adam. All right, let's continue. So again, I'm eager to rebut Dr. Tugby's opening comments, and it's clear that a lot of his difficulties come from the fact that the Son took on human form, hence praying to the Father and having the Father as his God. But for now, in my opening statement, I'll lay out the clear scriptural case that the Son is fully divine and since there's only one God, then God must be complex in his unity. Simply stated, this one God has revealed to himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we accept the testimony of the scripture, this is the only fair conclusion. This is as well a foreshadowing of what is to come in this debate. But essentially, we had, we had Brown saying that God sent his son to pay for our sins. Okay, so who's God there, Jerry? That's the Father. Yeah, he's definitely using the term God to refer to the Father there. And then here, he's using the word God to refer to the Trinity, okay? God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. This is equivocation, right? You ha you're using one word in one way and then using the same word in a different way, and you're acting like you're using it the same in both senses. And what he says here is God must be complex in his unity. Now, if he's referring to the Father there, that the Father has to be complex in his unity, then what he's saying is modalism. Is, some, is the idea that God the Father appears in different modes or in different personalities as opposed to Trinitarianism. So it's like he's got them right there side by side, depending on how he's using the word God here, which, which is not clear, at least not yet. We'll have to wait and see. The problem that Michael Brown is, falls into is he's, he uses his terminology like Plato, he kind of molds it and folds it in the way that he needs it to fit for his current context, but it is really inconsistent throughout his entire argument. And we, we really are, are a little bit confused, as, as we'll find out, as to 
how he actually distinguishes the father from the son. All right, let's continue. Now, for Dr. Tuggy and others, this is a logical contradiction, but the day we can fully wrap our minds around the nature of God is the day we've reduced him to our level, thereby making a God in our own image. The God of the Bible is marvelous and transcendent without beginning, without end, rightly called in Judaism the Ain Self, the Infinite One, and according to the scriptures, clearly complex in his unity. Will we accept the biblical witness or will we try to create a God based on our own limitations and perceptions? I gotta say that Brown is accusing Unitari biblical Unitarians of having a God that's based on our own limitations and perceptions. I think that he's trying to straw man attack here, trying to say that because the he believes the Bible to have this complex unity perspective of God, that then anything other than that is going to be a human invention. And, and I can understand how he's trying to attack the biblical Unitarian perspective from that end, but I think as we're going to go through, we're going to show that the biblical perspective is more coherent from a biblical Unitarian viewpoint. Yeah, and this is something that regularly comes up in discussion with people who affirm one of the Trinity theories that's out there, is that they, uh, they criticize the monotheist, the one who believes the Father alone is truly God, John 17, 3, of saying that we are reducing God. And that's what Brown says here. We've reduced him to our level, and we're somehow dissatisfied because we can't fully wrap our minds around the nature of God. Look, this has nothing to do with limiting God or anything like that. The question is your theory, Dr. Brown. That's what we're talking about, your theory of God. And that's, and that's the little separation that always gets skipped over. We have different models for understanding God. One is called Unitarianism. One is called Binitarianism. One is called Trinitarianism. And then there are lots of subcategories in each of those three. And maybe there are other theories I don't know about. I'm sure the Mormons have a whole other idea on the subject. But the point is, we're not limiting God. We're assessing your theory of God. And we're saying that your theory that you claim is biblical, even though you haven't established that yet in this opening statement, that your theory is contradictory. Your theory is confusing. Your theory doesn't make sense. And look, if you have a theory that doesn't make sense, that can't stand logically, then what is that? Hey, it's a bad theory. It's, it's no big deal. Let's just go back to the Bible and we'll try another theory. And whatever theory fits the scripture best and has the fewest difficult verses and doesn't contradict itself, let's go with that theory. Biblical Unitarians are not sitting at home saying, oh, let's let's see if we can wrap, let's see if we can reduce God to our level. No, that's not it at all. I think the, nobody does that. That's a total straw man. You're right. I think the irony also here is that uh, Brown is accusing Biblical Unitarians of making a God in our image, when in fact, that's actually what he has done by deifying Jesus, is that he's making a God. He's <laughs> literally making a God. Yeah, and so the, the irony is a little bit striking. Yeah, yeah, there are lots of ironies in this debate. Let's continue. In the Old Testament, the Lord stated categorically that he would share his glory with no one. As written in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Yet we see in the New Testament, Revelation 5, that massive glory and honor are given to the Son. As Revelation records, 
Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Either God has gone back on his word and another created being is sharing in his unique honor and glory or the son is one with the father equally God. And note here that all creation worships the lamb, meaning that he himself is not created. Having interacted with religious Jews for the last 47 years, I can assure you that if the son did not share in the divine nature, to worship him like this would be blasphemous. That indeed would be detracting from the worship of the only God and engaging in some form of idolatry. This is not like one candle lighting another candle without the first candle losing its light. This is like the second candle becoming predominant. In this case, having millions of people praising and glorifying Jesus and this to this day around the world, often without mention of the Father. If the Son is not God, then he has taken glory from the Father. Brown's first major assertion here is that God has glory, and that glory is for him alone. He shares his glory with no one, Brown says. And that's why then he quotes Revelation 5, referring to the way that the lamb, referring to the risen Lord Jesus, who was slain, that he is worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, and glory. He's like, see, if Jesus receives power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, and glory, and blessing, and God doesn't share his glory with anybody, then if Jesus is not God, then you're now blaspheming. You're basically an idolater because you are ascribing something to Jesus that should only be given to God alone. And I think that's the fallacy right there is, is he's looking at what is given to Jesus is supposed to be given to God and that there can be no sharing of glory, that God gives no one else glory. And I think that's false because God does share his glory. And God gives other people glory. I mean, God even said that he would give glory to Christ when he raised him from the dead. And that that demonstrates God's power. Well, yeah, Jerry, you remind me of John 17, 22, where it says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Going with Brown for a second, assuming that Jesus is God, then Jesus, as God, gives his glory to those who are not God. So what is that? Where does that leave us with Isaiah 42 verse eight? You know, I mean, we can't, we can't take that verse as an absolute principle for all scripture. If it's clear that God does share his glory with his son, and then he also shares his glory through his son with all of his followers, with all of his children. This is a case where Brown is absolutizing a verse, taking it out of his context if anyone's ever read the 40s of Isaiah, the context is very clearly Yahweh against the other idols, Yahweh against the idols of the nations. And that's exactly what we read in Isaiah 42, 8, which Brown quoted, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The context is I'm not giving it to other statues. Uh, the sun is not in view in this text. And when the sun comes into the picture, then we do have glory being shared with them, but not even right away. 
Not even right away. The son doesn't have glory. The son asked for the glory in John 17, 5, that he had with him, which could either be promised to him or it could be literally with him, depending on your view of preexistence. But either way, he doesn't have the glory, and he's asking for it back. So what is that? As a God without glory? I don't think so. Can God divest himself of glory? Isn't it, isn't it sort of like his base property or characteristic? I mean, who, who's neutering whom here? Uh, Brown's got a God without glory. He's taking the glory that Jesus promises to his people. He's taking that glory away. I mean, look, let's not squeeze Scripture to fit our theory. Let's squeeze our theory to fit Scripture. This reminds me also of the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, where it, talking about the Son, Jesus, it, it says that he's the reflection or he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation or expression of God. This idea that God holds onto his glory and uh, there's no other connection with any other being, that's not a biblical conception. And, and we see that, you know, that there's a lot of different types of glorification that happens in the church. Uh, salvation, I, I think if um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, um, Paul writing to Timothy says, you know, therefore I endure everything for the sake uh, of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You know, glory is, is, is a very broad uh, concept in Scripture, and there's a lot of different ways to look at it. So for Brown to categorize it as God has glory and his glory is his own and nobody else gets any glory, um, I, I think he's pigeonholing God's glory. From what I can see from Isaiah 42 and the other texts in Isaiah 48, and there are probably others in the 40s there, God's saying, I'm not allowing you, my people, to give the glory that belongs to me to my competitors, to Marduk, to Baal, to the Canaanite deities that are in competition with Yahweh. Now, if Yahweh wants to imbue his son with his glory, that's his business. The son is not in some way a competitor to God, as Brown sets him up here. No, everything that God does with his son and through his son and in his son is for his own glory as we see very clearly stated in Philippians 2.11, that even the exaltation of the Son to God's right hand, giving him a name that is above every name, is all to the glory of God the Father. Now look, if the Son already had glory, the same glory as God the Father, then why, why does he need to be exalted? <laughs> why, doesn't he already, why doesn't he exalt himself just like the Father would exalt himself? Uh, why, 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 does he, why does he need someone else to give him this glory? He sure doesn't seem like he has this glory in his nature, as the Father has it in his nature. And uh, one other point, Jerry, just to go back to the whole subject of the saints of God receiving glory. We see something very similar to this in Daniel 12, which is echoed in Jesus' parable of the tares and the wheat in Matthew 13 which he concludes by saying in 1343, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Or in Daniel 12:3, it says, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Look, that's glory. And that's the glory that God has prophesied through Daniel, through Jesus of the saints in the last day, that we would have 
glory. And this glory, once again, God is not stingy with his glory. He, he delights to share his glory with his people, with his children. And that's what the whole kingdom age is about. It's a time when God's glory radiates throughout creation, from the trees to the oceans to the people who are in that new creation, that we would all reflect and be participants in God's glory. So, yeah, I think this Isaiah, using Isaiah like this is totally suspect and obviously motivated by his theology, uh, not by a plain reading of the text. Now, what about the whole subject of worship, Jerry? Brown makes the point in Revelation 5 that Jesus is worshiped and that it says, Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then later on, to him who sits on the throne to the, and to the lamb, be blessing and honor, glory, might forever and ever. Amen. Uh, what's your take on that? I recall like in uh, Peter's second letter in chapter 1, verse 17, he's talking about the transfiguration. And it says that uh, for when he, Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus holds a special position in God's redemptive plan, one that's held by no other. God was pleased to give honor and glory to Jesus as his Son, the one who always did his will, the one who, through all the suffering, all the way to the point of death was obedient and by such obedience was able to buy back to ransom creation humanity so that they could be reconciled to God so that God could be all in all I think this is what John chapter 5 talks about when it says that we're to honor the son just as we honor the father that it's not necessarily that they're identical in the way that they're honored and what they do, because Jesus talks a lot about the distinction between the way that the Father works in him and the power of the Father is shown through the miracles that he did, and that Jesus being the Messiah, the sent one, the anointed one of God, that he is also due honor as God's representative. Uh, I, I don't think this is, this is a foreign concept to the Bible, but I think Brown is trying to argue that the idea that Jesus should be honored or given glory, that that is a blasphemous idea and a charge he's trying to lay to the biblical Unitarian account. Uh, furthermore, there's a, a really important text to take into consideration here in First Chronicles uh, chapter 29, verse 20, that says, Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God, bless Yahweh your God, and all the assembly blessed Yahweh, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to Yahweh and to the king. This is really a, an excellent parallel to the scene in Revelation where the, the people are all bowing to God, all right, and to the king. And what's interesting here, and this is, this is one of these subtle translation bias issues that comes up when you have Trinitarian translators, and they're kind of tweaking the text, nudging it in a certain direction. The word translated here, paid homage, is usually the word for worship. Uh, the word is shaha, and it's the word that just is normally translated, worship, throughout the Bible. Why do you think they translated it as paid homage here? I could tell you exactly why, because the translators were nervous that people were going to make a connection and say, oh, the king receives worship. 
This must be idolatry. No, no. The king can receive worship. The king can receive that kind of adoration, praise, honor, respect that is due to his position as God's representative on earth, as God's anointed one, God's Mashiach, God's Messiah. This, it, this makes perfect sense in the Jewish mind. Nobody freaks out. Nobody picks up stones to kill David after this happens. And uh, so it is in Revelation chapter 4. God receives this incredible worship, and there is no Jesus around. There is no lamb. And then in chapter 5, the lamb gets introduced. And now the father once again is worshipped as well as the lamb. But the lamb is not worshipped for creating the heavens and the earth. The lamb is not worshipped for giving his only begotten son. The lamb is not worshipped for being eternal. None of those things are said. None of those None of those things at all. The lamb is given honor and worship with the words, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Look, even in the worship of Jesus, it's recognized that everything that Jesus has done, his greatest accomplishment, is for God. And it's clear that he's not the one being called God here. In fact, Revelation regularly distinguishes between Jesus and God. And there's no incarnational move to make here. This is post-incarnation. This is post-exaltation, post-ascension. If Jesus is still not back to his original glory and equality with God, then what kind of a theory do we have here? I think the last thing I'll say is in the argument with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, Jesus even explicitly says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Jesus doesn't even view his own glory as anything important. He says that the only glory that really matters is from the one who glorifies him. So Jesus looks at his glory is actually derivative from God, not equivalent, derivative. And so I guess in Michael Brown's view, uh, God the Father should be the only one who actually has glory. And therefore, any glory that goes to Jesus, um, Jesus doesn't, he'd have to admit that Jesus as the Son doesn't have glory in and of himself. Yeah. Dale Tuggy has, has done an excellent presentation on this some years ago. It's on YouTube about whether or not the sun should be worshipped. I've done work on this. A number of others have. Uh, an analogy that I've found to be very helpful is the idea of making pancakes for mom. And it's just a, a, a little, little illustration where, uh, let's say you have little kids. Well, I'll just speak of myself because I do have little kids. <laughs> And we, and we wake up on Saturday morning, and we uh, we make pancakes together for mom. And you know, when you have little kids, they're they're really limited in what they can do. You have to constantly supervise them, constantly restrict them from spilling. You know, hold the bowl while they're mixing it, and so on, and really help them to not burn themselves on the pan. And the the end result is probably I'd say eighty percent parents and twenty percent kids. Uh, but when mommy comes down the stairs, she says, oh, look at what you have made for me. And she praises those kids and she gives them their honor and their adoration because of what they've done. Now, do I do I stand there as her husband, as the one who did most of the work and say, well, actually, you know, these kids hardly did anything. I did all the work. How How could you possibly give them all this praise? No, of course not. Of course not. As the father, I am delighted to see that my children 
are receiving praise, even if it's only a little bit that they did, and I helped them throughout it, I'm still delighted to see that they're praised. You know, and like I said before, this all comes down to competitors. Jesus is not God's competitor. He's God's idea. He's God's plan. He's God's means through which he achieves salvation. And so when people give Jesus praise for doing the things that God has enabled Jesus to do, God is delighted by that praise. He's not threatened by it in any way. What makes this all the more interesting is that throughout Isaiah 40 through 48, God repeatedly says of himself, I am, or I am he, translated into Greek as ego eimi. Yet that is the very language Jesus uses of himself in John, most decisively in John 8.58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, but I am. So not only does Jesus share in the Father's glory, but he identifies himself with the eternal God saying, I am, or I am he, also declaring his eternal preexistence. And just as the Lord says in Isaiah 48, 12, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last, so also in the book of Revelation, both the Father and Son are called the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So Revelation 21, 6, speaking of the Father who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Then Revelation 22, 13, where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Also see Revelation 1.8. He is clearly and unequivocally identifying himself with Yahweh. No created being could utter such words. Only the eternal God could say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The Son is the eternal God. What, what I find so amazing about Brown's constant usage of Isaiah 40 to 48 is the simple fact that the purpose of Isaiah 40 to 48 is to unequivocally establish that Yahweh is the supreme God. That's the point of these texts, of these chapters. It is the Unitarian portion of Isaiah. And for him to poach little arguments here and there from this part of the Bible to establish that there is another who is supremely God is going exactly against what Isaiah was attempting to do in his own time. And it just blows my mind that anybody could cherry pick from the, the 40s of Isaiah to establish that there are two who are God. When the point over and over is, I am Yahweh, I alone am God, over and over again. Let's go ahead through this, Jerry. What do you think about this I am he and this ego me and John 8, 58? Well, the ego me argument is, is an age-old one. It's been heavily discussed for centuries. But the interesting thing about the ego me argument is that it really rests upon a presupposition. Uh, the idea that uh, Jesus must be God and therefore is using this language in conjunction with Exodus 3.14, where God reveals himself to Moses as I am who I am, or the, the ego me and the Septuagint. But the interesting thing about like quoting something like John 8.58 where Jesus says that before Abraham was, I am, two things. First of all, uh, if you read previously, Jesus just said that if Abraham was the Pharisee's father, that they would be behaving differently. And that's because Abraham, it says, was overjoyed that he would see my day, Jesus said. And he saw it and rejoiced. 
Well, what day is that? He's talking about the coming of his coming. He's talking about the day in which the, the fulfillment of the redemptive plan of God through his Messiah would actually occur. Abraham didn't, didn't see Jesus' birth, but Abraham already had a precedent in mind that he knew that God was going to bring about a way to save his people, a way to redeem creation, that he would one day make things right again. And that was what Abraham looked forward to. And that's why before Abraham was Jesus, there was a precedent for Jesus as the Messiah, the concept of a savior, a redeemer. And so therefore, Jesus actually is before Abraham in the way that Abraham already had an understanding from God that he was going to bring about resurrection. Now, the egoemi issue linguistically is well known by scholars that this is, this is not a special epithet that really refers to God. And this is easily demonstrated by the other ways in which people use ego and me in the New Testament. I mean, even later in the next chapter, right after John 8, uh, in the story of the blind man, if others ask him, is he the one who was blind? Then he's told them, I am. Ego and me. I am, I am the one who was blind. I am he. And that's really what the, the Greek really means. Just I am he. I am him. I am the one. It's not an official title, but that's the way that uh, Trinitarians typically use it because they see the connection with Exodus 3.14 and the way that Jesus uses it, like in John 8.58, and they say, aha, Jesus is claiming to be God. He used the ego emi, but that's just a, it's a false conclusion. It's, it's a false syllogism, actually. Yeah, it's interesting, too, if you look back at the, uh, the Greek phrase in Exodus 3.14, it reads, ego ami o own. You have to pardon my modern Greek accent here. I think you would say ha own for that. But it's, it's uh, the definite article followed by a participle. It's what we call an articular participle. And it would simply be translated, ego is the word for I, ami is am, o own would be the being, the existing one, something the one, like that. The one who is. The one who is. Okay, so... The Greek translation of Exodus 3.14, if John was trying to make us see the connection between the burning bush incident and what Jesus was saying here in John chapter 8, he would write, ego ami o on, or o on. The, the point is not ego ami. The point is the predicate, o on, the one who exists, the existing one, the being, the one who is. That's where all the weight lands in Exodus 3.14. So, You've got a couple of possible conclusions. Either John himself is just bad at writing Gospels, or he's not trying to make you think of Exodus 3.14 here. And, you know, Jerry, just to, to your point about the blind man in the next chapter, just 9, 10 verses later, um, the ESV translates ego and me there as, I am the man. Or the NASB translates it as, I am the one. It's pretty clear that the same exact phrase can be translated supplying extra words in order to make sense of it. And yet, in John 8, 58, it's Yoda talk. I mean, they're dangling this phrase off the end, just, and in some translations, 
having the audacity to then even capitalize the I am as if this is a official divine title that Jesus is claiming here is, is nothing more than reading your theory into the text. Once again, that's the issue I have with Brown's Trinity theory is that he's constantly reading it into the text. He's not, he's not going to the text and finding his theory. He's assuming, he's presupposing, it's a presupposition of Trinitarianism, and then he's reading it in to the text over and over again. All right, let's move on to the next point he made here in this clip, which was that Isaiah 48, 12, I am he, I am the first, I am the last, is also found in the book of Revelation, where both the Father and Son are called the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Before getting into this too much, let's read the actual text that this comes from. It's Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. We'll, we'll go through all the Alpha and Omega first and the last text in Revelation, but uh, I just want to bring up this one. Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of death and Hades. This is what it means when you call Jesus first and the last. He explains it himself. He is the first one who has been raised from the dead, he died and he is a living one. He is the last. He's the final one who will live forevermore. Once again, let me read it to you. Jesus says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is the, the first and the final. He is the ultimate. And what we see here is that Jesus interprets this not in terms of eternality, uh, well, eternality going forward, but not eternality going backwards. He starts this first from his resurrection, from his death and his resurrection. And this makes a lot of sense in light of a lot of other texts in the New Testament where it says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead in Colossians. It also calls Jesus the second Adam. It's like in Jesus, we have a new start of the human race, and he does right what Adam did wrong. He is the first one of this new kind of human who will live forever. And he's the last. He's not going to ever die. I mean, he's resurrected. So uh, I think that's, in, in context of Revelation 1, what Jesus is saying. Now, uh, some people get bent out of shape about chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And I've actually seen this, Jerry, red-lettered in some Bibles. Uh, but it is mm -hmm. absolutely clear here that this is God speaking. This is one of the factors that really plays into reading a book like Revelation is that the speakers often change without, without much notice, especially in the, the first chapter and the last chapter in particular, where it's not always clear who is the one that is speaking. One thing we should also note about the way that uh, John is talking here about the Lord God, the, the Almighty, the Pantocrator, is that he is the one who was, who is, and who is coming. This title, the one who was, who is, and who is to come, is a distinctive mark that John is putting forth to identify God. And this is shown in Revelation 1, 4, and 5, where he gives the introduction, grace and peace to you from the one who was, who is, and who is to come. 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. This, this phrase, the one who was, who is, and who is to come, is actually a designator for God, not for Jesus. And that's why when Alpha and Omega, this is attached to it in verse 8, is to show, oh, this is actually God that John is talking about. But it's not attached later on uh, when Jesus is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, because he's not the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Yeah, that's an excellent point. In Revelation 21, 6, there's another Alpha and Omega statement. So what we're saying is that Revelation 1, 8 is clearly God. I mean, it literally says the Lord God is speaking in that verse itself. And then Revelation 21, 6, once again, it is clearly God speaking. It talks about how in verse 3, God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God who wiped away their tears and all this. And then it gets down to verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of water of life without payment. Um, And then we get to the next chapter, chapter 22, verse 13, where it says in verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Um, and then it goes on from there. So Brown's point here is that in chapter 21, verse 6, the Father says that he's Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Chapter 22, verse 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Um, and so on the strength of that, Brown says he is unequivocally identified himself with Yahweh, which is slippery language, if you ask me. I don't, I don't know what that means to identify yourself with someone. And then he concludes, the Son is the eternal God. Now, look, did it say the Son is the eternal God here? I mean, this, this conclusion does not follow. It's a non sequitur. It does not follow from the premises. If you are the beginning and the end, does not conclude that you are eternal, Okay. So there are a couple of interpretive options available here. One is to say that this really is Jesus in Revelation 22:13, and that God has in some way shared his title as being the A and Z, the beginning and the end, with his son, who is also now the A and Z, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Um, so that's, that's totally possible that God has conferred upon Jesus this title as a result of his glorification, of his being God's son who has achieved and conquered and been victorious and is now exalted to this incredible status. And maybe this goes along with this whole idea of giving him the name that is above every name. But once again, if you're given a name, if you're given authority, that means you don't have it yourself. You have to be given it. So where's the co-equality there? And, and this also brings me on to a whole nother, a whole nother issue, which is where you, you try to find a title used of one, and then you find a title used of the other, and you say, ah, Trinity. It's just a bad style of, of argument. You know, Brown later on makes a big deal about how the word Lord is used of Jesus all over the New Testament. And then he says, oh, well, the Lord is used of God all over the Old Testament. Yes. And it's used of David constantly. And it's used in many of Jesus' parables of just random hypothetical people because Lord, Lord was a word that had a lot of possible meanings to it. Or you see it with Savior. Oh, well, God is called Savior. Jesus is called Savior. Jesus is God. Well, so were the judges of Israel. They were called Saviors. What about when he is called the shepherd? Well, God's called shepherd in Ezekiel. 
or in Psalm 23, therefore Jesus must be God in John 10 because he's the good shepherd. There are lots of shepherds in the Bible. <laughs> Just to be a shepherd doesn't mean you're God. You know, I mean, this, this line of argumentation to me is really evidence of the weakness of the case for the deity of Christ, that you're reduced to using really flimsy arguments that are easily disproved or that don't necessarily prove it, but if, if it was already the case, then it would support it, but don't prove it. So that's, that's one possibility. The other possibility that Bill Schlegel has suggested is that in verses 12 and 13, we have a Zechariah-type statement where God is speaking about coming and bringing his recompense with him, which if, if you're familiar with it in Zechariah, it prophesies that Yahweh will touch down on the Mount of Olives. This is also relevant to Titus 2.13, which we'll probably get to later, but it's the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is the glory of our God and Savior. He is the, the one who, when he comes, God comes. And it's not because he is God, it's because God is at work in him, and he is God's agent doing God's work. And so when you meet Christ on the battlefield, as the New English translation puts it, a, a fine Trinitarian uh, Bible, uh, that you're meeting God on the back, not because he is God, but because he represents God. And so through Christ, God does come back. And uh, of course, we know that there is a transitionary period until God himself will be with us in an unfiltered way. We have to wait for that to happen ultimately at, at the end of the book here. But God is coming through Christ, and then he is coming himself. So I think either way you go with this Alpha and Omega business, it's certainly not a slam dunk. It's weak, and at best, what it does is it shows that Jesus has been given a title that belonged to God before this, and since it was given to him, it's clear evidence that he didn't have it in his own very nature. Well, that's enough for this episode. Stay tuned in a couple of days. Hopefully, I can get the next part of this out, and we're just going to keep cruising through until we finish up his opening statement. We're taking our time without going into too much detail. I recommend that if you do want to go into further detail, you check out Bill Schlegel's Misunderstood Text About Jesus series, where he goes on for four episodes addressing many of these same verses. And I just want to read out a few quick comments. Uh, the first is from Candace on Interview 51, Dale Tuggy Post-Debate Review. And she writes, I have a question for Finnegan or Tuggy. I have read Tuggy's book and Stanford entry. I don't want you to think I'm lazy. Do modalist, oneself Trinitarians believe that these three modes coexist? As in, Jesus is Jesus God at the same time the Father is being God and the Spirit is being God? Or do they believe God moves from one mode into the other and back and forth? And could you also say the same about oneness Pentecostals? Thanks. Well, Candace, as far as I understand it, the traditional modalist view is explained using the illustration of an actor wearing different masks, and he wears the mask of the Father and then of the Son in the New Testament period and then of the Holy Spirit in the church age. Now, I have spoken to some oneness folks, uh, oneness Pentecostal types, and their case is that God can do both at the same time. So I've asked them, you know, like, how does the Son pray to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane? for example, and they say, well, he's God. He can be in heaven and on earth. He could be in two places at once. It's not It's not a problem. So that's how they handle it, but the question still remains, is this a genuine prayer? Because he's literally praying to himself. 
And so the whole of the Garden of Gethsemane turns into a charade because here God's talking to himself, saying, if you will, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But yet they actually do have the same will because they're the same person. So I think there are some major problems with oneness theology. Additionally, the word and is problematic for that system where you see Paul in particular offering greetings, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, oneness folks will typically say that the word K, the Greek word K, can also mean even. They will prefer an alternate translation there. They will say, grace and peace to you from God our Father, even the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a special pleading, and being somebody that has studied Greek for many years and done so at the graduate level, it's just indefensible as a translation. I mean, yes, it is true that K can mean even in some cases, or even then, or also, but the most natural way of taking those texts that anyone who can read Greek will affirm is to say that the the word just means and there. So I think that fails as well. And there are a myriad of other problems as well with the oneness position. Now, Brown's position seems, like I said in the episode, seems to be totally contradictory because on on the one hand, he uses language that is oneness, no question about it. He talks of the Father and the Son as the same person, as the same individual, as the same, just being the same as each other. And then, in other places, he affirms more traditional Trinitarian language. So Dale Tuggy has a category for that called the one-self Trinitarian, but uh, where God does exist in all three modes, all at the same time, throughout all of eternity. But once again, this view is, is suspect to the very same issues that I just raised with the apparent conflict of wills between Father and Son. Look, if they are the same person, if they are the same mind, consciousness, then unless you want to default to some sort of like schizophrenia, you're going to have to say that they had the same will that he had the same will as himself. So, yeah, I mean, this stuff is really problematic. I'd be curious to hear what Dr. Tuggy says about this, because obviously when it comes to Trinity theories, he is definitely much more experienced than I am at at classifying them and studying them in depth. So, uh, so hopefully he can also drop a response that was on his post-debate review, interview 51. Secondly, Dan wrote in, on the Michael Brown post-debate review, he says, I could be wrong, and I am trying to give Dr. Brown the benefit of the doubt, but as I listened to him speak, he seemed to be more intent on preaching than debating. It sounded as if his purpose was not to respond to Dr. Tuggy's points, but to save his soul. I also think that machine-gunning text was a very appropriate reply. Well, I guess uh, the jury's still out on that, Dan, as far as the machine gun. At the end of this series, I'm going to count up all of the references. And hey, if he drops more than one reference per minute, can we say that that's fair to say he's machine gunning? Or maybe is it is it two texts a minute, three texts a minute? Uh, we'll have to wait and see once I count all those up. But it, it is a debate strategy, a tactic that makes him seem more confident and 
certainly less easily refuted, but at the same time, it's it's not really helpful for conversation because obviously Tuggy was very concerned to try to figure out not just that Brown believes Jesus is God. I mean, of course he does. That's That was his position. The question that Tuggy was trying to get at is, how does Brown believe Jesus is God? Does he believe he is just God the Father? Does he believe that he is God in some three-self kind of sense, in, in, in three persons, in one God kind of sense? And Brown so muddied the waters that, in the end, Tuggy wasn't ever sure, I think not even, I think not even still, if Brown can even be said to have a Trinity theory at all. He just doesn't seem to make sense. doesn't seem to be internally consistent. Also, someone named Baruch commented on Dale Tuggy's post-debate review, and he says, Hi, Sean. Thanks for the interviews. It was educational to hear from both sides about how they perceived the debate and the way things went for each side. Though I disagree with Dr. Brown's position and his debate style, I think he is right that the only fruitful debate format with someone like him is a format in which the exegesis of a limited number of scripture passages are debated. Philosophical discussions are important and can be very fruitful if that's where both sides are coming from. However, in my experience, what we saw with Dr. Brown is very typical of most Trinitarians. They rely on the authority of the text of the biblical canon and proof verses, not even text, to support their beliefs. They will hunker down on their favorite verses, claiming that their interpretation is quote-unquote clear, and thus never engage at any other level. Thus, the best way to deal with them is to demonstrate why it is that they are reading the text incorrectly, offer better readings and solutions to tricky passages, and most of all, demonstrate how each text supports the greater context. This takes time, persistence, and significant biblical language skills, which means it is not easy. But in my opinion, it is the most effective strategy. I'm looking forward to hearing your response to Dr. Brown's opening statement and hope you will challenge him at this level. Well, Baruch, you be the judge. Uh, That's exactly what I'm trying to do. I actually wish I had read your comment before I recorded this episode, but that's exactly what I and Jerry are attempting to do here. We, We want to take our time and really give explanations for these different verses. We recognize that just listening to Brown's opening statement, the 20 minutes with all his gusto and passion seems incredibly rhetorically convincing. However, that's not really how we should make decisions in life, is it? It should be based on content and substance. That's what we're uh, going through with a fine-tooth comb here is, does he have good content? Is his substance logically possible? And is it biblically sound? So, Stay tuned for future debates. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Please leave your comments on this episode, which is number 159, Refutation of Michael Brown's Case for the Trinity, Part 1, on restitutio.org. We'd love to, to see you engage, see if you have different take on any of these verses. And I would love, love, love for Brown or his followers to engage as well, because this is important stuff, and we're getting down to the meat of it here. I'll catch you next time for part two, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.